Hello, everyone. It's Heidi Trost. I am the host of the Human Centered Security Podcast. And I have here today Dr. Nobles. Dr. Calvin Nobles is a cybersecurity scientist and human factors practitioner with more than 25 years of experience. So he is retired from the U.S. Navy and he currently works in the financial services industry. He recently completed a cybersecurity policy fellowship with the New America Think Tank in Washington, D.C. And I just found out recently that he defended his, your second dissertation, right? Just recently? Yes. Yeah. Well, so welcome to the show. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that, the research that you did for the dissertation. I think that would be really interesting to, to start us off. Absolutely. And thank you, Heidi, for having me on the show. And I look forward to uh, talking about, you know, human factors. But I'd like to, you know, you know, take you up and talk about some of my research, particularly my research for my dissertation. So the title of my dissertation was Exploring Senior Managers' Influence of Human Factors to Reduce Human Errors in Cybersecurity. So I took this study under uh, up just to explore um, a gap that we had in research. I, when I was looking for uh, a topic and an area to explore, I wanted to explore a major gap. And this was definitely a major gap because there's a lot of research on human factors in cybersecurity, a lot of research on human factors and information security. But overall, this information is a little disjointed. And one thing that I knew is that senior managers play a critical role and the resourcing of organizations, especially from cyber. And this also applies to uh, human factors. And so this is why I explored this particular topic. And just to show you, you know, how important this was, one of the major findings, findings of this study was that there's a knowledge gap at the senior executive level and understanding human factors and understanding it as a scientific field. And it's also listed in literature that there's a lack of appreciation and the under-exploration of human factors in cybersecurity. And so this is all stated in my, my dissertation, and I look forward to getting this dissertation published out in some of the journals and taking some of the findings of my dissertation and, and put them in some what I like to call practitioner-based uh, publications to expand everybody's knowledge about human factors in cybersecurity. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Like when we initially spoke to discuss the topic, like that was one of the things that I kind of came away with, like, this is someone who can actually help us put human factors into practice. It's not just talking about it, right? And and that's kind of how I feel about, you know, in my practice of user experience research and design there's a lot of, you know, talk about it. Like, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, yeah, we should definitely do it that way, but then no one actually does it. <laughs> right, right. And I think, you know, one of the things, too, is that a lot of people think that this is just theory, but it's no longer just theory. I mean, we look at some of the other domains who have really leveraged human factors to reduce not only human errors, but catastrophic events such as aviation, medicine, nuclear energy and industrial safety, they've all done a tremendous job in grasping human factors and leveraging as a scientist at discipline to eradicate and reduce some of the high friction points with human performance. So I'm going to have you go into defining human factors, what a human factors engineer does in just a second. But I'm curious, how did you combine cybersecurity and human factors? Like what led you to that? <laughs> It's, it's, it's kind of funny because I, um, I actually started um, in human factors years ago when I was 
uh, a young naval flight officer, and I had the opportunity to become what we call an aviation safety officer. And these are young aviators or, or aviators in general who spend some time in an aviation safety course. At the time, it was out at the Navy Postgraduate School out in Monterey, and we took a course out there, and we came up to speed on investigating aircraft, uh, aircraft mishaps, aircraft accidents, um, aircraft hazards. And the other thing that we came across was human factors. And right away, it just clicked with me. I just knew that there was something there. And I just clicked, I just picked it up and I've been using it ever since. And so when I transitioned my naval career to get into you know the cryptologic uh, area uh, on special uh, specialty, one thing that I noticed was that there was a lot of parallels between what was going on in cybersecurity and what was happening in aviation. And then I started to explore a little more there. And what I found out was that aviation is a socio socio-technical domain, meaning that there's a, hu- a large human aspect to it as well as a technical aspect. And they really operate um, within what we call a system of systems, where you have smaller systems operating to complete one larger system. And they, these systems are independent, but they also are very dependent on each other. Meaning if you change one aspect, like integrate new technology, then you have to look at how that's going to throw off the balance of the entire system. And so that is how I came about getting into uh, putting human factors and cybersecurity together. It was quite natural. Yeah, and that's a great segue to talk about what human factors is. And I kind of felt like the, so when we, after we initially talked, I went back and kind of reintroduced myself to human factors. And I kind of had that same feeling, like, this all makes sense. Like, why haven't we, (laughs) why haven't we been thinking about this, this way the whole time? Like, it makes total sense. But, you know, at the same time, I don't know. I I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was introduced to in school. It was something that I had to educate myself on. So anyway, Tell us what human factors is, you know, what a human factors engineer does and why it's important to cybersecurity. Absolutely. And, you know, the definition for human factors is quite simple. It, basically, what it is, is the, the design of system and the environment to optimize human performance. That's all it is. So in, 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 in my sense, it's about how do we design systems and the environment in cybersecurity to optimize human performance so that we can so we can decrease human errors in cybersecurity. And so put that in perspective, it's about how do we design systems that are more favorable for humans? And that's all it is in, in the big scheme of things. And so what a human factor engineer does, it, it all depends on where you work. So for instance, when I was in the military, and one of the things we did, we had something called a human factors program. And that is where we took a look at some of the major our high friction areas and some of our major problems within our aviation operations, whether it could have been how many you know crew members that that are going through life changing events, a divorce, an illness, a loss of a loved one, or something major, something uh, catastrophic, and but having a human factors program, it allows us to work with those. Um, crew members and say, we're not going to put you in major flight operations until we can understand that, you know, you can deal with what's happening in your life. However, we would like to put you in a training environment so you can maintain some level of proficiency while you deal with whatever you have, whatever issue you are dealing with. And so to me, that was very positive because if you look at that from a cyber perspective, we don't really have that because let's say if someone's dealing with 
you know, a loss of a parent or a loss of a child or dealing with a life-changing illness or dealing with, you know, a divorce or whatever that adverse event that they're dealing with, a lot of times they come to work and they and they get involved in our cybersecurity operations. And our cybersecurity operations are just as costly as, you know, aircraft and, and aviation operations. And, so, and then what we have to realize is that when someone is distracted, and they cannot be cognitively involved in operations to 100%. So that leads to things happening, like mistakes, lapses, and accidents, or even errors, right? And so we have to address those things. And so that's one aspect what a human factors engineer could do is help drive things like that. The other thing they can do is take a look at your environment. And we, we all know that the cybersecurity environment is growing increasingly complex every day. Find out where those high friction areas are and help drive those high friction areas down to something that's more palatable for the management team. For instance, we know that authentication and passwords are every most every most most organizations are dealing with that. And so how do we get that to a level to where it's more manageable where we have less friction and less errors around that where people are creating, you know, very simple passwords because and it what happens is when something becomes too complicated and it exceeds the cognitive capability of the users, they will look for shortcuts or workarounds or they will find the most simple way to achieve the objective. And that's a natural reaction. That's a natural instinct. And a human factors engineer could come in and say, instead of having designed these passwords, can we go passwordless or can we go to biometrics? Something where we've taken uh, that responsibility off the user and redesigned it into the system to optimize their performance. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because... Passwords have probably come up in every single podcast that I've done so far because it's just, it's such a, it is the worst. It is the worst user experience. Yes. Um, and we've talked a little bit about going passwordless and like, you know, trying to think through other alternatives. Like, you know, passwords are just kind of inherently a, a big pain, right? So like, right. how can we make it easier? Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely glad that you said that. And then like, you know, other examples as well in a corporate environment, like, you know, sharing files with outsiders, you know, and and dealing with that. I've seen tons of that in, in the wake of COVID with people working from home. Like there's, there's so many workarounds that people are trying to do and it's, it's really problematic. Absolutely. And I know you said something that I want to raise real quick, user experience. One thing that I'm seeing is that there's a lot of job uh, jobs out there for people with user experience backgrounds. And I'm really loving that because people with your expertise are so important until what we're trying to do from a human factors perspective. We, we can take people with your background to help. Even with people like me, you know, you come in and you say, hey, Calvin, let's really focus in on what the users are looking for rather than trying to really focus on what the security aspect is doing. And so we're not saying that security is not important because we know that, but what we're trying to do is raise the two entities so that they're both important, the user experience and the security, and trying to meet in the middle to where we're reducing that high friction. And so people with your background are going to end up being just instrumental in what we're trying to do from a cybersecurity aspect, I think it's an emerging area where we invite people with user experience into cybersecurity to look 
internally what we're doing because I know what I see from um, my reading and just dealing with um, some user experience across different industries, they're working more so on the customer side. But you know, I have a very unique aspect and belief about human factors. It, the customer side is also very important, but so is the internal side because you can be just as vulnerable um, from a cybersecurity perspective internally as you can be externally. Yes, that was one of the things that I was really interested in talking about. I tend to go towards the customer side, like how can I make it easier for my mom, my you know grandparents to do? But what you're saying is maybe even more important. Like cybersecurity professionals are fatigued, they're burned out. You know, they're potentially they're in a position where they have to make really important decisions, but they're not in the frame of mind where they are at their best. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that, because I think that is really, really important. Absolutely. I mean, at least twice, if not three times a week, I see, you know, someone post on LinkedIn or another social media site, or even across in, in my research that I do weekly, I come across something that's de- dealing with security fatigue or chronic burnout or stress. And that problem has been persistent in the information security domain for a long time now. And we really need to start addressing it. You know, I, I know when I talk about human factors a lot, I talk about it as a correlation to aviation. And the reason I do that is because in the United States, human factors were born out of U.S. military aviation. And they were really significant in advancing human factors to the point to where we have it today. And one of the things that I noticed, like, a couple of years ago, there was a legislation signed that saying that there's only so many hours that a pilot could actually operate. And I really like that. And so for cybersecurity, I know we're in a different business, but we got to find out how can we implement something to where it will help us reduce fatigue, burnout, and stress. And maybe we can identify our critical areas of operations in cybersecurity, whatever it may be, and look to put parameters around that in terms of you can only do this operations for eight hours or you can only do this type of work for 10 hours a day. And I think that will help drive down some of the fatigue we're having. At the same time, I think there needs to be more training and more education on fatigue, burnout, and stress. Because if we let this problem continue to persist, persist, it's only going to get worse. And we are already dealing with, you know, a shortage of cybersecurity professionals in the field. So when you take those problems, they just start to compound each other. And the way to deal with that is look at what some of the other industries is doing. For instance, even in the rail industry, the uh, train operator is only going to be able to conduct that train for so long. That crew on that train is only going to be able to perform for so long. Do we need to look at things like that in cybersecurity? I say absolutely we do. There's already different types of frameworks and models and surveys you can use to determine if your team is fatigued, if they're experiencing burnout, or if they're experiencing high levels of stress. And the reason we want to get to that is because there's some positives on the other side of that. For instance, by reducing stress, reducing fatigue and burnout, what you get on the other side, you get employees that take less time off. For, for medical reason, you find out that your employees are healthier. You find out that they are more cognit- cognitively involved in your operations because they're not fatigued, they're not burnt out. And the other thing that I noticed about burnout is that it really is happening at, the, at our chief information security officer level, 
um, level. So the one thing we notice is that the average tenure right now is 18 to 24 months. I mean, by the time a CISO gets in the job and get his hands wet and, and get his hands wrapped around that bear of a problem called cybersecurity, he's probably already at 18 months. And and so my thing is, how do we find a way to, you know, to extend the tenures of our chief information security officer? And that's what we really need to look at. And I think that's where guys um, and girls like myself who have a background in cyber and a background and human factors can come in and, and help, you know, look at studies and do assessments to say, well, we can do this, this, and that to help drive that down. Because if we don't, you know, we go, we're going to continue to see catastrophic things from happening. And part of that is like if we look at the Swiss cheese model. I know everybody like looking at the Swiss cheese model that was designed, uh, invented by James Reasons, and I love it because what it indicates is that when you have a, a chain of events where small things align, whether it's being chronically fatigued, um, having a configuration error, or having inaction by management, when you have three things or more aligned, it leads to something catastrophic like a data breach, a ransomware attack, or a cyber attack, or you know, ex- or uh, exfiltration in of data from your network. And so we really got to get our hands wrapped around this problem. I really appreciate people raising the awareness on this issue, but I think now is the time to bring in, you know, some psychologists, some human factors engineers, and really start to address this problem because, you know, this is, this goes back to the analogy that I like to use. Would you feel comfortable riding on an airplane with a uh, bus mechanic repair the engine? Chances are most of us are very uncomfortable with that. So the point I'm making is that you're not going to find cybersecurity professionals or people internal to the organization that really understand this issue. You're going to have to get the experts in to really, you know, open this thing up and look at it and see what's what's driving the um, root causes of fatigue, burnout, and stress in your organization. Yeah, and I like how you you say that we need to learn from other industries. I think aviation really hits home for me because I think of how complex, not that I'm a pilot or anything, but from what I understand, there's so many different things that A, could go wrong, right? There are human lives at stake. It's in a different environment, right? You're not on the ground, you're in the air. There are all these different controls that to me look so confusing. I don't know how people keep track of that, but you know that's the, the UX person in me thinking through like, how do we make this as easy as possible? You know, considering the context of the situation, the lives that are at stake, uh, the pilot who may be like you were talking about stressed out, maybe tired, you know, and then all of those things kind of compound the pilots tired, the controls were in a confusing place, or maybe the controls looked too similar. And, you know, she chose one over the other. And that ended up being that critical mistake. And it was rainy, you know, and windy and like all these other things. Um, So that's kind of what I'm thinking, like when you describe the Swiss cheese model. But yeah, those I mean, those are all things that as human factors or as UX people, we we have to think through how do we make it easier for people? And in the cybersecurity realm, like I think about like alert fatigue, you know, all those like incessant alerts that professionals have to see, and then they have to make an educated judgment about what they're going to do next. Absolutely. Holly. You bring up a great point about the aviation community. What do they do to aid their air crew and their pilots into overcoming fatigue or overcoming you know, becoming complacent, right? So one of the things they do 
in the aviation community, they are very checklist disciplined. And it's very checklist oriented. Everything you do is a checklist. Even when you're sitting in the, you know, you're a passenger and you watch the stewardesses work on the aircraft, notice everything they're doing is a checklist. They, some of them have committed it to memory because they've done it thousands of times. But even the pilots, everything they're doing, they're following a checklist and they're making sure they do every step of that checklist. And in cyber, you know, one of the things that I notice is that we're not very checklist oriented. In some cases, you know, some things we do don't require checklists, but in some cases it does require checklists. And I think having, you know, becoming checklist oriented can really help us out, especially for instance, if, you know, let's say, let's take someone who works as an administrative assistant to a senior executive. And that individual gets an email in and they look at it and it's, it's, it's most likely this email is going to have a high demand requiring time and speed, right? To get them to do something that they typically wouldn't do and to make it seem like it's urgent. Now, if they had a quick reference, like a checklist that they can refer to, have you been, a, has the CFO, chief financial officer inform you of this? If the answer is no, go to the next one. Have you received an email from any of his assistants? If the answer is no, go to the next one. Have you been in a meeting or been exposed to this? If the answer is no, and you get so many no's, then stop doing what you're doing. Call the CFO or one of his uh, assistants and explore the matter further rather than authorizing an illegal transaction and you can't get the money back if that's what it's asking you to do. So I think having something like that is very helpful and it takes the stress off the employees thinking they got to be they got to remember all of these items because at, at, at any given time we only have so much capacity for memory and to call things up and anything we can do to make their you know make that experience better is very um, helpful. And, it, and it, that's what we talk about when we say designing systems to optimize human performance is how do we help them achieve their most optimum level doing their job every day. And that's where a human factors uh, expert or specialist can come in and really assist you with. We all can come, also can come in and say, hey, I noticed that certain task that you have your employees doing, whether they are cybersecurity professionals or whether they are your administrative assistants, or whether they're working in logistics in your supply chain, or whatever it may be, you can identify tasks that are more cognitively demanding, tasks that are more timely demanding, and then you can start to put some expectations around that to say, if I got three workers doing this type of uh, task and functions, then I expect that's all they're going to be able to do for the next four hours. And what that do is really give us some realization of what we're dealing with. And we'll be able to identify, start identifying our more critical areas in our in our work in our workspace. I love that example of the checklists. I think that is so smart. And we were, I think it was in last week's episode, we were talking about how our tendency is to kind of outsource our thinking to technology. Like, oh, the computer will take care of this. Like, I don't need to think. And like you kind of just default and you just go along with whatever the computer says, right? And, and in the case of responding to an email, if you had a checklist of, you know, all of those things that you identified, you would stop and you would think, you know, and you would pause and you would verify. And that would that would solve a, a lot of problems. And it sounds, you know, kind of silly, but but it's so smart. Um, and, and that would help us 
you know, not outsource our, our critical thinking skills, right? Uh, right. To a computer. Like Absolutely. we actually have to sit and think. Uh, you said something that was very um, important. And that was we outsource a lot of our, you know, banking capacity to technology. Don't get me wrong. Technology is extremely important to cybersecurity. And it's extremely invaluable to what we do. However, though, we have to remember to keep the people, keep humans at the center of what we're trying to do. You can't bring in technologies and wrap processes and people around the technology. You have to bring in the people, put them center, and integrate technology based on the cognitive and intellectual and technical admin of your people because technology can easily overwhelm your your teams if they're not up to speed. And we also have to remember that technology also introduces technological induced, what I call technologically induced vulnerabilities. And that is, we can't think that technologies don't malfunction. They do. We can't think that technologies don't have vulnerabilities. They do. And so we have to take that into account, especially when we start thinking about, you know, from a socio-technical perspective, where we got systems that are integrated and they depend on each other. And we don't know if we're going to throw one system off or take the system out of balance. And it requires some work to do. And so in cyber, we are constantly chasing the next threat or the next vulnerability. And we're trying to build a robust infrastructure where we have cybersecurity resiliency. And by doing that, we're making our infrastructure and our operations so complex that, you know, it's just overwhelming to some of the to some of the end users, which happens to be our employees. So what do they do? They take the easy way out. They do things in a very simplified manner, which might make them more vulnerable, or make them more risky to the situation. Or they will circumvent all the controls that you put in place just so they can get their work done because you have overwhelmed them. And that is the thing that we have to start asking now: Are my operations so technically overwhelming that what? undercuts are my employees taking to be honest with you some of them not might not be taking any in fact you might have a lot of them not taking any but we have to start asking that question because when people get overwhelmed they will start look, looking for ways to circumvent the process yeah i think complexity and overwhelm are are two very important topics when you're thinking about cybersecurity and you know, just in thinking about like user experience, just in general, doesn't necessarily have to relate to security. Like the end user does not care. They don't care the, about the complexity, like how cool your algorithm is. They don't care. They want to accomplish a goal. And if you're, you know, putting something in the way of the goal, the thing that they want to accomplish, they're going to go around it. <laughs> just, that's just how we are. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's we're really creative about it sometimes. Yes. It's, it's the same reason we... You know, we write our passwords down. It's the same reason you oh, you open the desk drawer and you'll see a list of passwords. Or, you know, it's the same reason people use the same password at work and at home and on social media. It's because it's easier for them. And that's why we have to continue to work to find out what processes, what technologies, and how to, and what systems we can design and implement to make it much more convenient for the users. So for organizations that are new to human factors, maybe this is the first time they've really thought about that. What advice do you have for them to incorporate human factors into their processes? Absolutely. I would tell them to start small. 
I mean, for instance, you know, do a survey. Find out what things are high friction areas for your end users. Look at your monthly reporting. See what your monthly reporting is telling you. How many people you have logging on that don't have multi-factor authentication? How many people you have that needs to reset their password on a monthly basis? How many people you have monthly that are making certain violations? How many times a year are you changing policies? And the other thing is, you know, always trying to approach it from a people-centric aspect. Not technology, not policy, but from a people-centric aspect. Because at the end of the day, we're only as smart as our most uninformed employee. We're only as fast as it takes for our, you know, our most slowest employee to come up to speed on something. And so we have to move in unison because you can't have, you know, a large group of people 10 yards down the field and you still got some people in the end zone. It doesn't work that way because now what you have done, you've actually made yourself more vulnerable. And so you have to really move slow at this. And the one thing I encourage them is to partner with the human factors um, organization. There's some organization out there that really take a look at human behavior and they push that human centered design aspect. And they're really good at it. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and there was a company from the UK, and they were talking about, you know, this human-centered design, and I really enjoyed it because in my research, what I've noticed was that other countries have embraced human factors and cyber a lot more so than we have in the United States. I'm really um, thrilled with the work that they're doing over in the UK with their embracing of human factors. We have to do a, a much better job and in the U.S. because when it comes to the hardware, I think we're really, really uh, savvy at that. I think even when it comes to the software, I think we're pretty solid there. What gets me is what we call the wetware, and that is the human part of it. And that's what we also call the soft side of things, and that's the psychology of it all, and that's understanding human behavior. We still struggle to understand human behavior in cyber, and so the only way to advance that understanding of human behavior in cyber is to start partnering with those organizations that specialize in that and start looking at how they can help you improve your organization. Absolutely. So the reason that we were first introduced was because of SolarWinds, uh, which has kind of unfolded since we, we first talked about it. So how do we help people understand the impact of something like solar winds, which is technically complex. So we're going back to the complexity and it is kind of overwhelming too. If we go back to that term, like it's just, it's a lot to take in. We kind of have that fatigue around different breaches, but I mean, this is, this is pretty big compared to some of the other things that have happened in, in terms of the complexity and the sophistication, sophistication of the attack. Absolutely. You know, when I look at solar winds and I, and my first question is national security, you know, especially being a veteran who worked in that national security area. When I look at solar winds, it, it scares me deeply because solar winds was such a sophisticated and 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 marvel attack and an event on the United States. And I'm not saying that to give credence to the nefarious actors for doing it. I'm just saying that the way it was it was carried out. We would never know the magnitude of this until months, in some cases, maybe even years. 
earlier you said you raised an important point about alert fatigue. There's a lot of alert fatigue going on when it comes to cybersecurity breaches, cybersecurity attacks, ransomware attacks, and just other, you know, cybersecurity incidents. But however, what we have to understand is that our data, our identity, our intellectual property, and even, you know, our personal finances are at risk here. So to be honest with you, we all have a responsibility in playing and in playing a part of the cybersecurity realm, whether you know we don't want to or not. It's just a level of responsibility that we can no longer avoid or not participate in because it's to that level now where we got you know nation state actors, you got non-nation state actors, you got cyber criminals who are very savvy, you got cyber criminals who are just trying to get their names out there, you got hackers who's trying to get out there. And it's much easier to do so based on some of the things that we've seen on the dark web. And so we all have a responsibility and understanding what's happening from a cyber perspective because it's impacting us and it's impacting our national security as a country. So we all need to be um, have, a, have some passion about it, have some understanding, because I know we're dealing with, you know, a coronavirus right now, but... In the midst of this, we had a, a major, you know, cybersecurity incident as a country, and we just can't ignore that either. So we, we need to be more cognizant about things like this, and the message needs to be um, communicated better to the public. Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and people will start to kind of hear this common theme throughout the podcast, is the the idea that we don't instantly know the implications of something like solar winds. In fact, it, it went undetected for quite some time, right? Uh, so yes. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't even yes. realize that it had happened until after the fact. But what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, in the physical world, and we talked about this in the podcast last week, in the physical world, we get immediate feedback when something goes wrong, right? If you, uh, and actually we get feedback with, with some of the the things that we use. So like my car, if I, kind of veer off to the side, I'll get this haptic feedback where the steering wheel um, yes. shakes. And then it tells me like, hey, you pay attention. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we don't get that in cybersecurity. Like we do things that are maybe not so secure, but like we don't, nothing really happens. Nothing that we are aware of happens. So we don't get that immediate feedback. And as human beings, you know, we need that. <laughs> we need that feedback in order Absolutely. to change our behaviors. So I... This is something that just keeps on coming up and uh, over and over again in, in terms of like getting people to care. But if they don't know what the implications are and they're not getting that feedback, how can we expect them to care? And then I think about like pollution, you know, and stuff like that and like getting pe uh, getting people to like care about wildlife in the oceans. You know, these are like big things. And you're like, well, you know, if one person puts a piece of trash in the ocean, you know, big deal. But like, if thousands of people do it, like, it's a much bigger deal. Right. However, I think the one thing, and then I'll shut up. <laughs> the one thing about cybersecurity is that one person really can make a difference. Yes. <laughs> so I think like getting people to understand like your actions actually could mean a lot <laughs> in terms of if a breach happens or not. Absolutely. What you said is, is spot on. And it reminds me of a quote I read out of Perry Carpenter's book called Transformational, uh, Transformational Security Awareness. And he said, because people are aware, it doesn't mean they care. 
Yeah. And so when I think about that, it's hard. It's a hard pill for me to swallow because I think because you are aware, you should care, but the two don't parallel all the time. And so how do we convince and how do we motivate people to care about things when things happen is is a whole nother, you know, it's a whole this different story, right? But we should care about those things because when you look at these things, they, they do have a national security implications. I mean, I see all kind of nonprofit organizations out there got got machines and all kind of devices in the ocean trying to clean the oceans. And you see some of the damage that these products that should not be in the ocean, what they do to different animals, right? And so that's just one aspect. How do we get people to care about the environment? And how do we get people to care about cybersecurity? That's that's a part of the uh, solution that we're really trying to drive, drive towards is how do we make people understand that what, that your voice matters? Because you might be the only one that sees something. And I think what we can do is we can take a page out of the credit card industry's book when they started implementing type of analytics to where, for instance, if my credit card show that I'm in just arbitrarily speaking in Seattle when I purchased, you know, something a few minutes ago in my in my home state of Florida, right? In my state of Florida. So they say something's not right here. Let's flag flag this activity because we showing Calvin purchase something in person in Seattle, but forty five minutes ago he purchased something in Florida. Something's not right there. So let's flag these activities and let's inform Calvin. I think if we can get to something like that to where we can start looking at behavior analytics and we can start seeing where things don't add up, things don't make sense, or even things are questionable and flag those and raise it to the awareness of people, hopefully they will have the ability to care, the dignity to care about those things to help us narrow down if there's some nefarious cybersecurity activity going on or not. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of uh, certain email clients will alert you if, you know, you sign in from a, a different country or something like, hey, was that actually you? Because it doesn't really make sense that this says, you know, Florida, but, you know, you're signing in in another country. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, those type of measures are, are solid and they, they're not a, a civil bullet by any means, but they help narrow down to what we should be doing. And it also helps get back to the human factors aspect where you having technology that are helping you because cognitively, you might not be thinking about this, but the technology is sending you some type of alerts or notifications that, hey, somebody just accessed your account and from an IP address in California. It was, was, was this you or not? And if it, if it was not you, then do certain, click here. And I think that's important because it's going to take that and some to get us to where we really need to be to continue to, um, man, just be able to survive in this very diabolical and dynamic threat environment we're living in when it comes to cyber. Yeah. And you kind of brought us full circle. Like it, it really, it's not one or the other. It's not technology or humans, right? It, it's them working together. It's the technology, you know, helping us with things that we're just not good at. And then, but also understanding humans and, you know, the complex creatures that we are and the nonsensical creatures that (laughs) we are, um, who don't always make the best decisions and like do get tired and, you know, do need to take a nap and eat food and, you know, take care of themselves. Uh, So, yeah, I I think 
you know, that's a kind of a great way to end the podcast is that like, we need both, we need to understand the humans and account for them. We need the technology to do what the technology is good at doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's been a pleasure being able to talk to with you through this. And and as I've Sure, you and I are going to talk more, especially about the user experience um, aspect of this, because I believe user experience specialists are going to play a huge role in the world we're going forward cyber in the cyber realm. And I just want to continue to support your podcast because it's so important in getting the word out and educating others about you know human centered design in the cyber, and we we can't it's, we can't express that enough how important this is and how we need to help those who are working in the domain move forward is by focusing more attention on the human element, the people element, and so we can get it right. And so people will no longer be seen as the, what we call, and I know some don't like to say the word, weakest link, but how can we improve that to make humans a very more dynamic impact to cybersecurity? 100% agree. Yes, and I look forward to continuing the conversation because, yeah, we there was a lot we, we still didn't cover and a lot more to unpack. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you again. And, and you're very welcome. Thank you for this opportunity.